This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel M. Lavery. And with me in the studio this week, this week? Sure. It's Jaya Saxena, a staff writer at Eater. Her latest book, Crystal Clear, an essay collection about how humans assigning meaning and power to objects, was published in December with Quirk Books. Jaya, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm so happy to be here this tweak. <laughs> this motherfucker said, Grink. Um, I also love, I, I realize I did not include this part in your bio, but you said you're currently a staff writer at Eater. And I appreciate the like nod to the precarity of being a freelancer where you're just like, well, we'll see. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love We're not a job. freelancer. Are I you have, a freelancer? What's your deal? A, no, no, no. I'm not a freelancer. I'm a staff writer. But I think it's the nature of media where it's just sort of like, who knows what tomorrow will hold? You know, none yeah. of these things mean anything. Uh, I could be out on the streets later. Some outrageous Ross Perot type is going to buy us tomorrow and oh. sell us for scrap. Yeah. It's always, always a fun time over here in media. <laughs> It's a great time. <laughs> I am very much looking forward to our questions this week. And I just want to prime the audience for the first question by saying it's about a person who has a problem with a vegan relative. And that can be challenging. And I commit to you, my listeners, not to do any of the equally insufferable bullshit that people do when somebody talks about having a problem with the person who is vegan, which is just like, oh, vegans, there, fill in the blank. Um, I'm not going to match that insufferability with insufferability of my own. We're going to tackle this problem for real. Yeah, um, absolutely. Without arguing what type of approach to food makes someone the worst. Because <laughs> the good news is no matter what you eat or don't eat, you can find a way to be insufferable about it. Mm -hmm. There is no pure path. So the subject is my vegan sister is becoming insufferable. Dear Prudence, about two years ago, my sister and her partner became vegan. At the time, my sister cited a lot of junk science about cancer rates and health outcomes, and we argued about it a little, but I let it go because being vegan is good for the environment. She's happy, and she's an engineer who is, quote, so much smarter than me, a lowly social worker, so she'd never listen to my opinions anyway. Fine. I'm tired of arguing about it, but I also have no interest in becoming vegan myself. Lately, her focus has shifted to animal rights, and she's very aggressive in her arguments with anyone she's able to bring it up to. She started to reach out to me unsolicited to convince me to go vegan by comparing dairy farming to human slavery and sharing media supposedly created by black women to support her argument, citing, quote, the black community as being okay with the comparison. This is abhorrent to me. I'm angry she thinks this is okay. And then she called me a speciesist when I told her I didn't want to talk about it. I'm struggling as a person with a temper. How to approach this without recreating the constant cycle of blow up, silence, avoidance of the real issue, uneasy peace that is the history of our relationship. Can I just move to the moon and avoid this conversation forever? Actually, like, kind of yes. You don't have to move to the moon, but 
absolutely you can avoid this. You don't have to engage in this conversation. And I understand why it's tempting to engage in this conversation because it sounds like the letter writer has a history of sort of resentment over the way conversations go with their sister. And that the the idea, the line of like, oh, she always knows so much more than me, a lowly social worker. It sounds like whoever she is, sure, maybe she's a bit of a know-it-all and that's been annoying to deal with in varying ways over the year. So, you know, they're coming to the conversation with that baggage. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then for, and the great news is you uh, you can throw out that baggage anytime you want. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think that um, I, I'm glad that you challenged or or seem to have challenged um, the part where she said the entire black community stands with me. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I do think that's worth fighting about. Mostly because, yeah, anytime somebody says, like, one person of this race has said something that agrees with me, therefore, I've got the sign-off of the entire population, that's really fucked up. Uh, no, that's not how those things work. Uh, that's not a thing you can even get. Yeah. And, and yeah, and, and also it is fucked up uh, to compare <laughs> things that are not, like, the transatlantic slave trade to the transatlantic Trans- slave trade. Right. And there are plenty of ways to talk about veganism and factory farming and uh, the the way workers are treated in farms and in slaughterhouses and the many, many injustices of our food chain without comparing it to slavery. It can it can be bad in its own way and not in a slavery way. <laughs> yeah. Clearly, uh, the sister in question is not a black woman. Um, mm-hmm. My hunch is that she is a white woman. Just a guess. This is not. Yeah. <laughs> uncommon among a certain type of white vegan. It's not to say that white vegans are more or less racist than white omnivores. Um, but as a as a tactic, it, it does tend to smack of whiteness, I think, which mm-hmm. is just sort of like, Certainly. you know, the history of slavery in America is like a neat way to score points in an argument about something else. Yeah. Um, which is fucked up. Yeah. And so I think that the letter writer can absolutely, um, and and I know it's hard, but absolutely just do whatever they can to not engage in these conversations, to say, I've told you uh, I don't want to talk about this and then not talk about it. Hang up the phone, go to another room, talk to someone else, try to change the subject, whatever the situation requires. And, you know, it might be hard and it sounds like maybe it'll be a while before the sister realizes that this is what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, you, you do not have to get yourself to a place where you blow up, you, you can disengage. Yeah. And I think part of the reason that my answer here is like, absolutely just avoid this. It doesn't sound like you and your sister have had a very good relationship for a pretty long time. Mm-hmm. You have maybe never had a very close relationship. And I think sometimes it's one thing if somebody writes to me and they talk about, I used to feel really close to my sibling. I feel really hurt and sad that we seem to have lost that closeness. I want to try to get something back. This feels a little bit maybe more like I just feel obligated to have these fights with her a lot of the time because you're supposed to talk to your sister a lot. You can just not like her, you know? Yeah. You happen to be related. You might have some outstanding affection for her or warmth or whatever, but you can also just say like, this person's exhausting. I don't really like her. (laughs) I don't really like the way that she thinks about or talks about her values. And so I'm just not going to give her a lot, you know? If she wants purchase on the mountain face of my psyche, you know, I'm going to go gray rock in it. So I think giving her, as, as you were saying, you know, certainly saying like, 
I'm not going to fight with you about this anymore uh, or like ending a conversation. You can also just like be endlessly banal and cheerful, just like, oh, it's an interesting point. I'll think about that. Yeah. Wow. What an interesting (laughs) point. I'll give that some thought. What a great point. I'll give it some thought. Just relentless. Yeah. I mean, I guess I just like, I worry that the sister would take that at face value and not understand maybe the the boredom behind it. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I see in, in this letter, you know, this person saying, I'm tired of arguing about it because I have no interest in becoming vegan. And it certainly sounds like the sister is spending so much time trying to convince one person to c- become vegan who's not going to become vegan. And all of that energy could be better used elsewhere if you have to try to convince people. You know, there, there's other activism work to do. There's other work that benefits animals and people in the food chain. But yeah, I think just being like, I've told you, I'm not going to be a vegan. I wish you well. Yeah. <laughs> and then walk away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Something that you can repeat over and over again that doesn't commit you to anything. So just like, really glad this is working out so well for you. Great, great to hear your thoughts um, or even simply not responding. You know, if she's only reaching out to you to be like, here's a meme about how dairy milk is the devil, um, just fucking ignore it. Just fucking ignore it. Go ahead. You have my absolute permission to just give her nothing. Like, don't, I think you say, especially because you're a person with a temper, you're struggling. I think there's probably a part of you that would feel like I'm going to send her a bunch of like memes of my own or a ton of arguments of my own or or really like unleash uh, the full force of my anger. And I think just, just write her off, you know, (laughs) I don't mean like as an entire human being forever, but just like on this subject, just think of her as like a bug. That's dehumanizing. No, that's Well, not if you're a vegan of her (laughs) variety, because her whole thing would be treat the bug with care, which is not an inherently ridiculous person, uh, a viewpoint, but. Again, the, the idea, the idea of, hey, you should care about what happens to animals and the planet is Mm -hmm. not the wrong thing like that it's it's clear that the letter writer doesn't think that either the way that she is going about it is Is not helpful to anybody here not helpful to anyone and and frankly does not really appear to honor any of her stated values it has more to do with making other people um like into instruments of her will but uh, you know yeah if she calls you a speciesist obviously again she's your sister she knows how to press your buttons but just go with like okay yeah yeah You just don't have to do it. (laughs) All right. I'm a speciesist. Fine. You know, if a car was about to hit a human child or and a squirrel, I'd save the child. Yeah. (laughs) Big, big shrug. Um, Brand new trolley problem. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm sorry because I I think the insufferability has been in the works for a while. I don't think it was veganism that started this, but it's it's also clear that she's found it to be a really satisfying like um, wedge with which to try to, you know get at people. And that's really, really frustrating. And again, that that stuff about uh, slavery is just racist, is what it is. That doesn't need to be there. (laughs) Gross. Let's move on to our next letter, which I, I think this is almost a new one for me. Oh, this one I read and was just like, Oh, this is a totally different question than the one Mm -hmm. that you think you're asking. Yeah. Um, Anyway, subject, pet anxiety. Dear Prudence, my husband wants a pet. I grew up with pets and he didn't and he feels like he missed out. I don't want a pet because I know I do not have the emotional strength to deal with their death. And I will know I will spend every waking moment 
thinking about and panicking about their impending death, just like I did when I was younger and my parents and siblings had pets. I haven't been able to tell my husband that I don't want a pet because he's been so excited. He's a very social person, so the pandemic has been really hard on him. And this is the first time I've seen his eyes light up in months. I love my husband more than anything, but for the sake of my mental health, I will have to file for divorce if he adopts a pet. How can I tell him I'm not on board? So my first impression there is that this letter writer seems to be acting like spending every waking moment panicking about your pet's impending death is just the nature of pet ownership. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it it necessarily is. And I think they're not just pet anxiety, anxiety but larger anxiety that maybe needs to be addressed here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to say like, you need to treat this as a serious problem. So you can go get on medication or see a therapist, fix it in six months, and then get a dog. Right. That's not what I'm saying. But you don't mention letter writer whether you have ever um, shared this information with anyone else. Mm -hmm. Like you don't say whether your friends know about this anxiety, your husband doesn't know. You don't mention anything about ever seeing a therapist. And what you're describing is the kind of anxiety, you know, I'll say disordered anxiety, you know, you're, you're... the thought of owning like a cat or a bird makes you think I, I love my husband and I will file for divorce if he gets one. That's, and you know, again, I don't say that to be like, wow, you're, you're, you're really messed up. That's so bad. I just mean like that's, that merits a lot of attention, both personal right. and professional. That is a strong feeling. And that is a strong urge to say, I can't have a pet because I will be thinking about death for all the years that we have that pet and nothing else. Um, that And I, I would hope that if the letter writer told their husband that they're having these feelings, that they don't want a pet because they feel like they're going to be so preoccupied with death that they won't be able to function in other ways, I would hope he is sympathetic to that. I would hope he's open to a deeper conversation and understanding why maybe they need to pump the brakes on getting a pet and talk about some other things first. And maybe it'll down the line result in getting a dog. Maybe it won't. And and that's fine either way. But yeah, I think before you even move forward on any of this, you have to tell your husband exactly why you don't want a pet rather than just, I don't want one. Yeah. And, and I think the way to frame this, and again, I don't say any of this in the in the sense of, you know, open the door a little bit and then get yourself better so that you two can eventually get a pet. I, I'm not saying that at all. You may get help, treatment, care, attention, and still feel like I'm not up for pet ownership. That's not on the table for me. And then, you know, your husband can deal with his own reaction to that. You can talk about your shared disappointments, your conflicting or contradictory interests, and you can work through that. Um, That's hard and sad, but it's not like an insurmountable goal uh, necessarily. Yeah. Um, But rather than saying, hey, I just need you to know I'm so anxious about pets and pet death that if you get a pet, I will file for divorce. Like the way to frame it would be, I haven't told you about this. Um, I'm 
embarrassed. I haven't told you about this. I, I haven't even necessarily until recently realized how bad this is, how serious this is. Um, when I grew up with pets, I was so overwhelmed with fear about their deaths that it was all I could think about. Um, it was constant. It was compulsive. Um, I did not feel like applying willpower made any difference. And it was really distressing. And um, I haven't mentioned it because you've been so excited and it's been such a rough year. I want to be there with you. But when I think about getting a pet right now, I get so upset and and just feel like kind of torn out of any security, safety, or stability that I just panic. I, I, I can't imagine functioning under those conditions. I know I need more help than just telling you about this, but this is where I need to start. Has anyone told you you're very good at coming up with scripts? <laughs> It's like a reason that you have this job, I guess. <laughs> You're so nice to me. Please keep saying nice things. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, because again, I think that both makes it clear it's really, really serious. I need you to know. And also, I'm not just telling you this to shut you down and then we just move on with our lives and like we just treat this anxiety as something that can never be tended to or or treated but without also then making any promises like I'm going to go to a therapist and within a year, I'm going to get so much better that we will get a pet. Uh, you know, the things that you need to communicate are, this is really serious and big for me. I need more care and attention than I have gotten for it previously. So I need to talk to my doctor, talk to a psychiatrist, talk to a therapist, try to learn more about whether or not this obsessive fear of death of pets has ever perhaps translated into a fear of your own mortality or the mortality of the human beings that you love. That would maybe will also come up or has also come up and, you know, not like, don't worry. Like if you see a therapist for six months, you'll come to terms with your own death. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. Or just the idea that like, that there is any sort of solution to this, or there is any sort of cure that will allow you to have a parakeet. Like that is not how, yeah, that's not the framework here. It's just, Hey, this is something that needs to be prioritized. Um, and needs attention if we are even going to have the pet conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I just like, your husband's not bad for wanting a pet. He didn't know. You're also not doing this on purpose. If, you know, you say he's really social, um, maybe there will be ways for him to, you know, volunteer as a dog walker once or twice a week. Um, eventually, once it's possible to spend more time in, time indoors, he can maybe volunteer at an animal shelter. There will be ways for him in the meantime to, you know, be around pets, be around animals. And, you know, if for you, the best thing that happens is just you don't have to carry this alone for the rest of your life, that would still be a huge improvement. Even if you never feel ready to own a pet, you know, your husband could work through his disappointment. You could be sad together, um, but you wouldn't be suffering alone. And so that in itself, even if things never get so much better that you feel ready to have a pet, that would be a better outcome for you than just swallowing it down and divorcing him and not telling him why. Because he, I, I, I don't think he wants that. As much as he may want a pet, I really think what he would rather have is for you not to be like, and I'm leaving you. Oh, absolutely. Like I, I, the idea of saying I'll have to file for divorce if he adopts a pet. I'm, I'm just picturing the scenario where he brings home a cat and then is served with divorce papers. I know it wouldn't happen exactly like that, but, uh, you know, I'm, I am pretty sure anybody would say, okay, I'll give the cat back. And then can we please talk about this? <laughs> you know, certainly I, I have occasionally heard from couples who do ultimately break up over pets. It's not unheard of, but it's not like 
at this stage of like, I want a pet of some kind I've never had. It's usually like, I've had this animal for a really long time and my partner hates it. And, it, you know, we, we we can't figure out a compromise. Yeah, it's it's so. not the idea of a cat that is going to, you know, result in the end of a marriage. It's my turn to read our next letter. I also, I, I, I want to say this too. At this point, if you're writing a letter to me, you don't have to put asterisks after people's names or quotation marks or a parentheses, not as well name. I assume you're all changing names. If you're not, you should be because I don't always do it. <laughs> but and also, generally, I don't know who you are. <laughs> yeah, I don't know who you are. So like, I, I don't know. I feel like people make a little extra work for themselves. And I'm like, it is, I think at this point, like an accepted convention of the advice column that you're writing in and you're like, his name's not Chip. <laughs> so... Yeah. Change the names if you haven't been and don't tell me or do whatever you want. Anyways. All right. This next one. Oh boy. We're, yeah, we're just going I like right that back we're, into the. I like that we're going up and down with like the really yeah. hard ones. And I'm just like, just don't do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, subject is not our baby. Dear Prudence, my sister-in-law is 19 and has a nine-month-old baby. No known father. She has mental health issues that have been compounded from the pregnancy, but she's also neglectful towards the baby. She ignores the baby for hours, won't properly feed it, lets it sit in dirty diapers. The minute another person is in the house, my sister-in-law will dump the baby in their lap and leave, sometimes for days. Both my in-laws work low-paying jobs and can't stay home to take care of their grandbaby. My sister-in-law has no job or schooling to attend. It is a constant struggle because no one will bite the bullet and get the authorities involved. My sister-in-law will get hysterical and scream that they will take her baby away from her. No one wants that, but the baby is suffering. My mother-in-law and sister-in-law cooked up a scheme where my husband and I would take the baby and raise it until my sister-in-law is, quote, ready. Just a few years of being full-time parents, upending our lives and falling in love with this child and then giving them away like a dog. I told my husband that this scheme was sick and I would leave him before considering it. I would be willing to adopt this baby, but his sister would have to sign her legal rights away. I would be the mother, not her. My husband and I told his family that this wasn't happening without a legal adoption. My sister-in-law got hysterical again. My sister-in-law then stormed out of the house and disappeared for three days. My mother-in-law had to call in sick at work and stay home to take care of the baby. She blames us for this behavior. My husband and I are covering their rent for March. This situation can't go on. My husband says his family will never forgive us if we call the authorities. I don't know what else we can do. Help. <sighs> yeah, yeah. I, I think I'll start by trying to articulate my general values in this situation and then trying to assess what I think are some of the least bad options because I don't I don't have yet an exact handle on where I'm going to go. So I'm like getting into my answer in real time. So I'll start with this. If you decide ultimately that the way that your husband and his family are handling this situation means that you want to leave him, that would make sense to me. That is an option. Uh, I think you should, you know, not hold it as your the thing you are going to do tomorrow, but take that one seriously. Um, this will continue. No, I think no matter what you do, this is going to affect your lives for years to come, and so that's a serious consideration. And in some ways, if you two do stay together, and um, whatever happens next, there will be ways in which you will be involved in this child's life and involved in your in-laws' lives in ways that you simply might not be prepared to commit to. Um, and that may feel very different from the commitments you were prepared to make when you got married. So 
hold that one uh, simply not as being like not outside the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I would say another thing is simply that calling the authorities, by which I assume you mean CPS or, or uh, some equivalent local child services, um, is not a guarantee that much would happen. Yeah. Um, sometimes they call and things drop off. Sometimes they merely come by and harass you. Sometimes they make your lives worse. Um, sometimes they remove the kid and put them in state care. And sometimes that can be worse too. So I don't want to say either if you involve the state, nothing will happen. Or if you involve the state, they will take the baby away immediately and the baby will be raised in some like beautiful ideal home. Um, I'll simply say that involving the state will put a lot of things even further outside your direct control and that it, it you cannot perfectly guarantee that it will get any of the results that you want or even if it did get the result you want which it sounds like have the child removed and and put up for adoption or foster you know you won't know how that works out you know it's possible that that could make the baby's life much much worse yeah yeah exactly that that is not a a cure all in this situation and I, and I feel for everybody here because it is really, you know, obviously nobody wants to see this baby suffer. No one wants to mm-hmm. see this baby ne- be neglected, but also asking other people to assume the role of part-time or full-time parent, that is asking a lot. And not everybody has the capacity or the willingness to do that. You know, even if they had all the money and the time in the world to parent, you can't you know, just ask someone to take that on if they don't want to. I mean, I in reading this letter, it's so clear that the sister-in-law is struggling. She's 19. She is 19. She she has a baby and, you know, I, and if she has these mental health issues and... And is, what sounds like PPD maybe? Yeah, yeah. PPD or PPA, maybe both, whatever. I mean just is really, really struggling in a, in, in a way that's causing her to disappear for days. Um, I mean, I think it's easy sometimes to drop that into a narrative of just negligent and uncaring person. But no, I think this is someone who is having a really hard time, who doesn't know what to do and doesn't have much support. And the support being offered, um, if the support being offered is, well, okay, I'll support you, but that means, you know, you won't get to have legal uh, guardianship over your child anymore. That's so hard. That's such a, you know, if that's your only choice, I can imagine feeling really conflicted and and really trapped and confused there. And so like my first thought was just try to see if there's anything else that can be done to support the sister-in-law. I mean, okay, paying, paying rent is great. And I know, you know, money isn't infinite in our hands, but are there any ways to get, you know, some mental health care, some other child care in here to have maybe a hard conversation with the sister-in-law of saying, hey, what do you need from us? But also you can't just leave if that is what we are prepared to give you, you know? Yeah, and I think it's important to uh, treat your sister-in-law 
with compassion for the position that she is in. And I want to assure you too, letter writer, you know, your concerns and frustrations are very real. You are not simply being a busybody or judgmental. Um, so I, I want to really stress both. I, I have a lot of compassion for this 19 year old teenager who has a child with no known father, which you know, I don't want to read too much into that, but it certainly leaves open the possibility that she was assaulted or raped. Um, she's clearly struggling. It does not sound like she's doing this because she's having a great time. And I also think you should treat her distress and panic at the prospect of losing custody of her child as real rather than simply willfulness or an inability to deal with reality, which may also be present, but but I really think you will be able to make better decisions if you can take her fear at the thought of losing her child as real, um, that that's not just her acting out, that that would really cause her grief and pain. At the same time, that does not mean that you have to feel so much compassion for her that you disregard actual harm she may be causing her baby or actual wrong things that you see her doing. So, I, I want to be really careful. The compassion is important not to treat her mental health issues or her youth um, or her lack of support. Not that people around her aren't trying. I just mean like there's not enough money and time and care and expertise to go around right now. Um, you can have compassion for that. And you can also say, this is not okay. This needs to change. If we have multiple meetings and conversations as a family about how we can all step in and help, and that's still not resulting in the baby is relatively quickly put in clean clothes and diapers when like they soil themselves is being fed on some sort of regular schedule, then we do need to talk about next steps. Um, that's allowed. That's allowed. That's important. You should do that, but it should be done from a position of first try compassion, collaboration, working together. And only if that, if you've exhausted all of those other opportunities, do you then think about calling in the state. So I don't want to say like, don't ever do it, but I think maybe have as clear and concrete a sense of what would be the things that I think would be worth that risk, that gamble, because they're absolutely, certainly for me, there are situations where I would make that call, even knowing the risks that that call would entail, even knowing that generally speaking, I do not want the state getting in the business of like taking kids. Um, there's still situations where I would say, that's a bargain I got to make today. Yeah. And um, I don't think I have anything else to add to that. I mean, this is just, it is not a situation I have any personal experience with. And this sounds so difficult for everybody involved. And, you know, and the the stakes are so high here. Um, it's just, yeah, I really, I really feel for this family. And I just hope that everyone obviously prioritizes making sure this baby is not neglected, but also that this young mother um, is also not neglected and not blamed for things that may be greatly, greatly outside of her control. Yeah. Um, I think the last thing that I'll add is I think what you need to do now is you and your husband need to have a separate conversation, just the two of you, and and talk through, okay, one thing that is not on the table is this weird informal semi-adoption scheme that, it, by the way, it doesn't even sound like your sister-in-law has consented to. So, Oh, absolutely not. It yeah, was you bizarre can't. to begin with, but like they can't, yeah, they just, they don't have the ability to say like, great, we're just going to like grab the baby one of these days, pop her in your house, and then like hope we can distract the the mother for long enough that she 
yeah, no, that's yeah. not a plan. That's not a workable <laughs> plan. Um, yeah. The whole we'll adopt her if she signs away her legal rights thing, I think is also a non-starter. So you should just scrap both of those and you should consider, are we prepared to help in other ways? So, and I don't know what your resources are. And again, this may not be a commitment that you would have wanted to make, but it is the position that you're in. These people are for now your family and this child is in great need. So if you and your husband were able to say like, it would be hard and stressful, but we are willing to subsidize, you know, mom and dad's uh, part-time work or subsidize their rent so that one of them can stop working and help raise the baby so that she's never alone. And so someone's always able there to help. I, I think in many ways that would be the best possible outcome. Um, if that doesn't seem possible, which it may very well not be, then I think the thing you need to say to your husband is, I am prepared for your family to never forgive us. I am thinking about calling the authorities. I may decide that like, according to my own conscience and my concern for this baby, that that's what I need to do. And if you do make that decision, I think you should be honest with him, but you should also be prepared for, you know, the family to never forgive you and for that to potentially be the end of your marriage. And again, you know, I, I like call a pediatrician, call like contact as many experts in terms of like child care and neglect and get as much information as you can. And I feel bad because I feel like I'm like, come up with a spreadsheet of how much neglect you think this child can endure before you're willing to call CPS. But there's sometimes situations where it's like a really very more than imperfect, but like often inconsistent and neglectful parent plus additional family support is better than going into foster care. And there are situations where it's, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, man, this one's just really sad and really heavy and I'm really sorry. You know, I wish the government could just fucking pay for diapers and, uh, you know, regular childcare and mental health support services for new parents. Right. It, yeah. This is one of those situations where if childcare were free, if healthcare and getting, you know, a child regular pediatric visits were free, and if every parent was, you know, given diapers and formula and everything, this would be a totally, totally different conversation. And it's just so sad that it's not. <laughs> Yeah. But you know, the thing, I mean, the, the biggest thing is if she's not properly feeding it, if the baby's going hours without food, that I think is, you know, you, 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 you see if either the family can treat that like the emergency that it is and come up with ways to make sure that that baby gets fed. And if they can't, you know, I, I, I do think that that would be a point where you would maybe need to decide like, okay, I'm making the call and I will weather the fallout because that baby needs to fucking eat. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's move on to something <laughs> a little bit, a little bit better. Just because there's no hungry babies. Yeah. Oh my God, get that baby some food. Oh my God. Yeah. Please. No, no, no. Yeah. yeah. There's no. There's no hunger here. It's just uh, emotions and culture. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> sleepwalking into marriage. Dear Prudence, I am a young South Asian woman from a conservative family. My family has been putting tremendous pressure on me to meet guys they set me up with and get married. They try to make it clear that they won't force me to marry someone I don't want, uh, I don't want to, but put huge pressure on making me say yes. I got to a point where I avoided their calls for weeks on end. I have never had trouble dating, and it's been a while since I've had a long-term relationship. 
A month back, I met a guy they pressured me to see, and we had a pretty good time. Theoretically, he's compatible with me, and he's a kind, interesting guy who seems to be genuinely into me. It feels like we had a few standard good dates, and one thing led to another, and I ended up saying a default yes. Now, everyone's excited about the wedding and are starting full-blown preparations. It seems everyone but me. I don't know that I want to marry this guy. I could still end it now, but it would cause a lot of heartbreak for both our families since they've already told everyone. I also don't know if I want to end it. What if he might be the one who got away? Will I be throwing away a solid thing for some more indefinite casual dating? All right. To start off, I will say... If the, if the worst thing that happens here is you call off a wedding and your parents and his parents have to make some uncomfortable phone calls, let them. That is not actually a problem. You know, uh, I, I think maybe there might be some hurt feelings there. People will get over it. That is not a catastrophe, really, um, in terms of the prospect of maybe marrying someone that you don't really want to marry. I think on the other hand, right, I think this is then a conversation you need to have with your now fiance. Um, after- yeah, I was going to ask, <laughs> do you think he's a good person? Like, it, it seems to me like he would be a good person to consult. Yeah. And, you know, and I, and I definitely, as also a South Asian person, um, in in my sort of immediate family, there's not really there's not been much arranged marriage or this sort of modern arranged marriage where it's like your parents send you out on a date, you go on a couple dates, you become engaged soon after. Um, but there, you know, there have been some in in my wider family, and you know, I feel like I always got the message of like, well, the mar- the marriage turned out fine anyway, um, <laughs> and so I, you know. I, I don't think that this is an inherently wrong way to start a marriage or a relationship. Um, and I don't think that there's no possibility that maybe you get married and you guys have a lovely and fruitful life. Um, but I don't think the the hope of that should make you ignore any real concerns that you have in the moment that maybe you just did this to get your parents off your back Uh because you want to adhere to tradition, um, because you're tired of dating and he seemed fine enough. And I think it's hard because there's a lot of gray area in there, right? Like I, and I think that's what she's dealing with. Like she can't tell if she genuinely likes this guy and has some other hangups about saying yes when she's resisted this type of relationship for so long, or if she, she doesn't and he's just a perfectly nice guy that she doesn't really want to be in a relationship with. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the last question, would I be throwing away a solid thing for some more indefinite casual dating? You know, that is a big question. Mm -hmm. Um, It's possible that if you said, I'm no longer confident about this guy, I want to call this off, that your parents would in the future attempt to set you up with somebody else. So it's also possible that there will be more quote unquote solid things coming down from them in the future. Um. I, 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 there's just also no way of knowing. I don't know if you don't marry this guy. Um, I don't know what you might choose to prioritize in your dating life. I don't know who you might want to date. Um, I don't know how you would want to approach dating. Um, certainly there's not a guarantee that if you did want to approach a different style of dating that did not include a lot of family input when it came to choosing who you wanted to go out with, 
that might be indefinite. It might be casual. It might be open ended. It might not result in marriage. So, you know, I, I would I would say less that it's about something solid versus something indefinite versus um, do I really want to commit to this particular yes with this particular guy in this particular year right now? Uh, I think because otherwise you'll you'll add, I think, maybe more pressure to yourself of like, I am making one and done this definitive decision about whether or not I'm going to participate in this like culturally and familially expected thing. Whereas it might feel a little bit easier for you to contemplate saying no, if it's like we're talking about this particular engagement, which has not yet resulted in a marriage. It doesn't sound like anyone's put down a big deposit yet. So now is, I think, the best time to really think about that. Absolutely. And, you know, she talks about like people are in full-blown preparations. So I realize there's a there's somewhat of a time limit here. I don't mm-hmm. know where in those preparations they are, but if, you know, if no contracts have been signed about wedding venues, if no other ceremonies have taken place, uh, I think it might also be a difficult conversation, but reasonable to talk to your fiance first and say, hey, I said yes to this because I was having a really good time dating you. And uh, as he probably knows, like the culture we come from, um, this was expected to say yes. And I'm not quite sure if I am ready for that yes yet, but I do still like you and I do still want to spend time with you and see where this goes. Um, I think that's a, I think depending on what everything around this looks like, that is an option because she does seem to genuinely enjoy this person. And I think being able to say, Hey, can we, is it, if there's a way that you could just date a little longer or something to give yourself some more confidence, see if you can make that happen. But also that might not be possible depending on what is already in play right now. I think that's really good too, especially because I think, you know, you say so far he seems like a pretty good guy and he likes me. And if you were to say to him, I really like you, I also want more time before mm-hmm. we start actually renting out venues. Do you want that too? Um, that will be a good indicator of whether or not you actually, you know, if his response is really bad, if it's like, nope, make your decision now or don't, or if it's really like, you know, don't worry about having doubts. Everybody has doubts. Just ignore them. That at that point you may think, okay, this is an indicator that this is not the guy for me. And I actually do need to call in the like, you know, sorry, it's, it's a no. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Oh, this is hard. But yeah, I think I like your idea of it's not just here is your opportunity. And if you say no, you are doomed to a life of indefinite casual dating. Um, One, I don't think a life of casual dating is inherently any less fulfilling than a life of marriage. If you say no and you continue dating and, uh, and you never get married, you know, Maybe there would be times where you wish you got married or maybe you will find that this is exactly the kind of life that you wanted. And there's no way for you to know that right now. But I don't think that worrying about every possible future is actually going to help you make the decision right here. Yeah. I think the last piece of advice that I would suggest to this letter writer is, I don't know if you have many friends of your own age who are in similar positions or who have made a variety of decisions about whether or not they were going to marry somebody that their family had input in from the start or not. Um, 
But I, I would encourage you to seek that out. And it may not be something that you are able to ask your you know, current social circle, but if you can try to seek that out in support groups, message boards, online, um, any way that you can try to get insight and advice from people who have been in similar situations, I think that will really help you feel steadied and seen um, and and like the options that that they might suggest to you are are closer within reach than somebody who's just like, wow, that sounds totally unlike anything I've ever had to deal with. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, close to your age is really key there because you know, any auntie is just going to be like, well, I've been married to your cha-cha for 50 years and everything's fine. (laughs) And so, yeah, I think that is, that's really good advice. Yeah. But it is hard. I don't doubt that, you know, your fear of the heartbreak or, you know, pressure, (laughs) let's let's maybe go with pressure or disappointment rather than heartbreak. Um, I'm, I'm sure that your assessment of that is probably real and that is hard. And one of the things you have to weigh that against is, how you might handle going into this with a lot of reservations or a lot of fear or concern that you pressured yourself or were pressured into it. And and that is important too, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And good luck. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad at least that he's nice, you know? I'm glad he's interesting and seems to be into you. That seems at least promising that a conversation with him will go okay. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, I I would definitely have much different advice if I just said yes to the next guy my parents set me up with and I don't even like him. Um, it, It sounds like he's a nice person, that you two have some chemistry and like a genuine good beginning of a relationship. Um, and I, I really hope he's open to having some bigger conversations. Yeah, me too. And good luck. Keep us posted. <laughs> Jaya, thank you so much for bringing your charm and wisdom to all of these problems. I wish I could have gotten a question about crystals for you, but oh. I just don't get enough. Yeah. I think also people generally, you know, are pretty chill. I, I would hope that no one is like, my husband wants to get a crystal and I want to file for divorce. Well, uh- <laughs> you know what I think it is? I think, I think, I think JP Brammer gets them all. I think Ola Poppy has yes. cornered the market Ugh. on gay crystal questions. Absolutely. And the, uh, it's, he, it's right that they should go to him, but I am super jealous. I think he gets the good crystals. If, if you get any crystal questions in the future, straight or gay, give me a call. I absolutely will. <laughs> I absolutely will. Do you have any final words of wisdom for anyone, whether or not they happen to have a crystal near them? Uh, I think, you know, the, the wisdom that I like of crystals is just, hey, it's a pretty thing. And sometimes you want to take five minutes to focus on something pretty. And that might uh, help everything else going on in your day. Uh, and I hope... That's good advice. I hope everyone cooped up in their houses gets to take their little walks, their little outings for the day. And yeah, just... Uh. <laughs> think about pretty things hopefully you get to go someplace that's a new place yeah that seems great uh, i love i love these vague affirmations of our times the the, the vaguer the affirmation the better look yes. at pretty things be well jaya thank you so much thank you so much danny thanks for listening to dear prudence our producer is phil circus our theme music was composed by robin hilton 
don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Investigate how much of this has to do with your reaction to fatness. I have a hard time with this because I'm just like, it's not hard to be attracted to a fat lover. No. It's just no. It's just not. Like it's it's great and you should enjoy it and have a good time. Bodies are great. Flesh is great. Size is great. It's not hard. And and you don't have to like try to convince yourself that it's somehow more virtuous or it makes you a better person. And, you know, dealing with all the various messages of just like disgust and repulsion that are, you know, crammed at people's heads about fatness kind of from jump is, you you can't remove that as a factor, I think. But again, that doesn't mean just like say, I'm bad and fat phobic. Now it's my job to be a good person and be attracted to him. So I realize these things are slightly in contention. Um, they will not in themselves solve your entire problem, but it's a start. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod.